0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: Hello and welcome to an episode of Modern Myth with me, Tristan, also known as the Anarchaeologist. Now, today's episode, we're talking about one of my favourite subjects, which is the destruction of the British Empire. Haha, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Please stay around. To hear more about actually a good, well thought out discussion about what are what the current state of empire is as a historical kind of place in Britain today as well as the kind of things that people discuss with regards to the culture war and to discuss with me today uh, none other than Kim A. Wagner who is a professor of global and imperial history and uh, yeah thank you for very much for coming join us today thank you for having me so I want to start off with um, a kind of a little bit of. Um, I mean, you're quite, you're quite well. Um, you you know quite a lot about the British Empire. It's a lot of the, of the things that you study and that you talk about. How like if somebody wasn't really like I, I think most people understand. the the british empire overall but what was special about the british empire that meant that it's such a it's it still seems to be very much in people's minds nowadays
0: that's a very good and very broad question um (laughs) uh, the british themselves would say because it was so bloody brilliant uh and the british were so good at it and, and that's why it's rightfully uh remembered today um but of course, if, if we take sort of a macro perspective, the British Empire is only one uh, amongst many, uh, but it's arguably the one that's had the biggest impact in shaping um, the modern world and sort of the global landscape uh, as we see it today. Um, so, I mean, any, anywhere you turn um, in the world today, the kind of borders that uh, people today take for granted uh, nationalities, lots lots of, of, of sort of root causes of conflicts uh, can be traced back uh, more or less directly to the British Empire. Just to take one example, um, all African Americans in the U.S. today are descendants of slaves, and uh, the British Empire was, uh, you know, based for, for several hundred years uh, on, on slave trade. So that's just one. It may not seem like an obvious Uh, link but the british empire is is pretty much everywhere you look
1: of course and it's spread throughout the world that's why we have things like you know the the commonwealth which includes places um all around the globe um i'm i'm quite interested however is that like you know the british empire isn't just like obviously there's the the conquest and the war that goes on in terms of like going to places and almost taking them over but obviously there's another part of empire with regards to the, what happened after that control was seized or that conquest was made that the british empire seemed to be it seemed to kind of develop its own kind of administration and stuff like that how do you feel um like w- what can you tell us a bit more about like how the british empire operated
0: I think, first of all, we have to recognize the fact that, you know, the British Empire is is a shorthand uh, for something that is historically quite unwieldy. There's obviously a a big difference between, um, you know, a handful of of English settlers um, making uh, a new life for themselves in, in North America at some point in the 17th century to the East India Company taking over the South Asian subcontinent uh, a century later, and then someone like Cecil Rhodes, uh, you know, trying to to, uh, build a a railway from Cairo to Cape Town and and, uh, dreaming about Anglo-Saxon world domination. So I I think what you're talking about in terms of um, the British Empire, um, well, its operation, what we're really talking about is the 19th century. Uh, and and into the twentieth century as well, uh, which is this uh, quite I- elaborate bureaucracy uh, but also um, i mean it's one of the things if if you're proud of the empire or if if you happen to watch the Prager you video about hmm. the british empire which uh, uh... which is always good for 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 a few laps. laughs um, I mean one of the things is, is of course that you know. A handful of, of, of uh white men, because it's always men,
1: mm. uh, were able
0: to dominate tens of thousands of people and rule over your millions of square miles of territory. And it, it is this there's this belief that, that the British they had uh an in innate capacity uh for ruling and for ruling well. And that that's part of a myth that's deeply entrenched in, in the in the sort of popular imagination in Britain today, but also, you know, beyond um, uh, the British
1: Isles themselves. Completely, completely. And actually, just as an aside, I really, really despise you on a lot of levels, but particularly because um, they tried to say that, you know, the British brought uh, civilization to Ireland, which I, I <laughs> take particularly bad on several levels. And I, I, I feel like there's just this lack of actual knowledge on the ground. And I think this is reflected, actually, in a lot of people's ideas about empire, that there is a superficial level of knowledge, uh, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of in-depth knowledge. Um, so. If we were to talk a bit, just like as an example, um, the East India Trading Company, I mean, y- you look at that and you kind of see that that's something to me that's that's like a company that's not necessarily, you know, the British crown and the British as a government going in. It seem it sounds more like a company going in and taking things over. How how, do, how does that actually match up with what happened?
0: Um, Well, I mean, William Dalrymple has recently written uh, an excellent book called The Anarchy, in which he compares um, the East India Company to Amazon um, uh, of today. (laughs)
1: Um,
0: And so, yes, it it is a private uh, trading company, but they have uh, the blessings of the British crown. The Union Jack is is in one corner of the East India Company flag. So wherever the East India Company goes, so does the British Empire um so it's it's never this completely independent sort of uh, romantic notion of free trade uh it it, it is deeply entangled with, with, with british sort of uh, imperial ambitions um and if we think about the um really the establishment uh, of the east india companies sort of gaining a foothold in india in the 18th century at that time, the British are competing with uh, French trading companies, Dutch, even Danish, um, you know, settlements along the coastlines uh, of, of uh, South Asian subcontinent. Uh, and at that point, the Mughal Empire is uh, quickly weakening. And so, these European trading companies forge local alliances and in many ways exploit the sort of power vacuum that uh, is emerging. Uh, But the British uh, are just one amongst many, uh, you know, competing powers. And since I've mentioned the other European trading companies and the fact that the British are never just a trading company, but that they also uh, represent British interests, uh, the wars that we see uh, and that really, uh, you know, uh, shape global politics uh, from a Western perspective, at least uh, in the uh, 18th century, it's of course a conflict between the British and the French, uh, and so the what's in America known as uh, the French and Indian Wars, uh, in the in, in Europe is called the Seven Years' War. But that is f- that is literally fought all over the world. It's fought in North America, of course. It's fought in India. Uh, it's fought in the Caribbean, uh, and and everywhere where these European powers that that they're, they're sort of. Uh, expansionist uh, policies that they clash and and they rub up against each other so it's it's not even just about you know the East India Company trading in India and getting a foothold it's also about what is essentially European politics Um, but by uh, I mean as we now know uh, you know the the French uh, are finally defeated in 1815 and and and, uh, are pretty much out of the picture in in uh, in India and the British, they um, by 1818, so not long after, the British are the dominant power in in India, and the Mughal Empire has been reduced to sort of a puppet uh, emperor who's sitting in in Delhi. Uh, but even then, it it takes decades before you know British India, as as uh, as we know it, is established. So one of the things that you you often hear is that sort of the, the British say, acquired uh, their empire in a fit of absent-mindedness. It's it's, uh, it's it's a bit too blessé, but there's also something to it in the sense that there was never a master plan that was followed. And actually, every time the local um, governors in India they uh, engage in, a, in another military, costly military campaign and acquire another part of India. Uh, the, the The Board of directors back home they you know they write them back and say please stop that' it's, it cost us it's costing us too much uh but but the distance means that you know it can take it can take months and even years before this kind of communication goes back and forth so It's still at a time when the world might be globally connected but it's not uh quickly or efficiently connected and and so it's a piecemeal expansion of of british conquest, which doesn't always align with what might be uh, in the in the best interest of um, the the stakeholders back in london uh but of course the situation looks very different if you're sitting in in madras or bombay uh, uh thousands of miles away
1: it's interesting how without like you said this this broad specific plan that these things kind of occurred and happened and i think one of the most um interesting insights that i gained was when i talked to dr priyam Gopal about her book insurgent empire and talking about resistance um in these ter in like in parts of the british empire and i think it kind of speaks to this idea that you know these places didn't just kind of like magically you know get you know just suddenly were in British or French or you know Belgian or Danish hands they they were there was resistance at times and there were there were complex things going on but in spite of not having a well thought out precise plan with pure intent it seems to have worked out very well for britain in terms of the amount of things that it got out of these places so i mean could you could you, i could see somebody saying well they didn't have a plan it wasn't intentional you know just happened that way but that's not really what's going on here instead it's things that are happening and at the same time um there's things are being wealth is being extracted from these places i mean i've heard of like people trying to calculate how much wealth was taken from india for example um do you think that like those calculations are beneficial to helping people understand the the way the relations of um empire or do you think they kind of make it harder to kind of get away from uh, well, this is good about empire, and this is bad about empire. Like, how, how do you, what do you feel about like the calculation of stolen wealth, for example? Um, I'm not an economic
0: historian, and and I find I find the attempt at 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 at, at measuring factually um, the exact amounts quite um, tedious in some ways. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's really important that we do acknowledge uh, and absolutely recognize the fact that that Western imperialism uh, is is an extractive and capitalist project, and th- that that is the 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 basic cause of it. And uh, the various governors and officials working in the East India Company they amassed massive private fortunes and 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 were deeply corrupt. Uh, to the point that that we have this sort of famous trial of of Warren Hastings in in the eighteen eighties and nineties, uh, where people back home they 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 basically it becomes too obvious that that this is a, a greedy and and corrupt system. Um, but by eighteen eighteen you know early nineteenth century the East India Company is no longer getting. Uh, the, the, the major part of its profits from trade, but from revenue. So we can always al- already see there is a complete shift in terms of, of the interest. And, and that, that stems directly, of course, from, you know, taking over land. Uh, and then later when we get into the 19th century, it's, a, it's, it's about, you know, creating markets for British, uh, produce, which then links British possessions in India to the industrial revolution. But just to go back to your question, um, we don't i i i it's just we don't, we don't actually know i mean people talk about the the gdp during the Mughal uh, era was such and such and and that's a completely ridiculous uh, uh, um attempt i mean it, it you you simply cannot know these kind of numbers if you were to talk and and also they the, they're meaningless because you know gdp is an average uh, and as as we know today, wealth can be held in the hands of very few people. It doesn't actually say anything about the relative prosperity or well-being of of, of societies in that sense. But even if we don't necessarily take these numbers, which which you know these kind of historical statistics, when we go back, um, I mean to to this period, we simply do not have the data to make the specific argument in terms of numbers. But there is no question about the fact that India was uh, an incredibly wealthy and vibrant um, subcontinent, really. But the Mughal Empire was, was uh, a, a, a vibrant uh, and very rich both culturally and economically when the British arrived. And by the time they left uh, in, in 1947, uh, it, it looked very different. Uh, and, and 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 so there's no, the British were that came there for profit, uh, but then things they then changed, and, and then there's also such a thing as as political prestige and political profit. So the sort of the brood greed in or sort of the, the the greedy essence of of the imperialist project um, kind of shifts a bit, uh, and and when we start talking about. Uh, British prestige, uh, imperial pride, and and sort of political capital, which uh, obviously operates in slightly different ways.
1: Of course, that's a good time for us t- to take a break, and we'll be back right after these messages. And we're back. You're listening to Modern Myth, and I'm here with Kim Wagner talking about empire. Now, obviously, I think in Britain the, the way empires talked about and taught i think is they leave a lot kind of off the table um what do you think what do you think from what your interactions with other people how do you feel like britain talks about its own empire in both education and just in the general population do you think it's kind of like is it a true is it a reality or is it a bit of a instagram filter so to speak so I think there is actually a slightly unhelpful
0: um, narrative about how poorly the empire is taught in, in schools in Britain today. Uh, there's no question, uh, if we go back a decade or two, uh, it was taught poorly, if at all. Uh, but the students that uh, I see now teaching at university, but also the, the teachers that, uh, that I you know talk to and, and, and engage with, Uh, are are working extremely hard to update the curriculum and to actually provide a a, a really comprehensive, critical, nuanced um, uh, education that that very much includes the empire. Uh, So I I think what the kind of, you know, we will be talking about the culture wars. I think some of the debates we're seeing in the UK today uh, are also about a generational shift. And so there were people who went through um, the basic education and grew up at a time when the British Empire was basically something mm-hmm. y- you were proud of. And and, the, and there was a very sort of, um, um, you know, it's not exactly a Snapchat filter, but th- the empire was never just about ruling uh, the world uh, and sort of, you know, rule Britannia and all that. So, jingoist of nationalism, it was also about establishing and, and in many ways dictating what that narrative was. Uh, Priya Satya's book, uh, Times Monster, does a brilliant job of um, actually showing that this rose-tinted uh, history of the British Empire was part of, of, of the sort of imperial uh, propaganda project. Uh, one of the things, probably the most obvious case, is, of course, the abol- um, abolishment of, of slavery. Uh, which, you know, I, I I I joke, that's the one thing all students know about, and they, they know little about the sort of preceding centuries of actual slavery. But that was even at the time, in the 19th century, we have these redemptive narratives coming in. And so there's always, yes, you know, the East Indian Company, the people were a bit greedy, a bit corrupt, it didn't really take the civilizing mission seriously, if at all. But thank God, you know, now we have these, you know, Christian missionaries and, and benign um, governors, and, and, and we are now sort of spreading civilization. And, and I, th- I, think, I think really sort of uh, the, the history of slavery is, is one that that's very much fits into that mold, has very, very little to do with any kind of attempt to understand what, what actually happened, um, and everything to do with a particular exception, exceptionalist narrative uh, according to which, you know, imperialism is not a nice thing, but the British were pretty good at it, especially if you compare us to, I'm using an inclusive us here since I'm Danish, uh, but, but especially if you compare us to, you know, Belgian Congo or the Germans in Southwest Africa. So that—that that is very much the kind of um, established narrative, which is pretty much has become a cornerstone of, of the culture war that's currently being fought out.
1: I must say it's very, very reassuring that the younger generations are having a better kind of idea of empire taught to them, and it does very much feel as if there are there's a certain demographic that seems very invested in this narrative empire that you're talking about that oh it might have had some bad things but um especially like i i feel i feel like i didn't really understand the the really bad things or the things that people talk about with regards to empire and that could stand out as you know, pivotal moments. Uh, I mean, the Amritsar massacre uh, is one of the things that I feel has been, it's come to the surface more recently. Um, I don't know, um, uh, like, could you you describe for us what happened with the Amritsar massacre?
0: Yeah, so this is sort of, this is the bone that you throw liberals when you have to sort of admit that the, the British Empire, you know, you know, it wasn't all rosy, uh, and there were these bad moments. I, th- I think the Daily Mail actually has has a, a one article where they talk about the occasional massacre, which is like when somebody they sort of they spill ketchup and it's like, oops, it's like uh, we accidentally massacred some people, but it's definitely not part of the plan. Um, the Amritsar massacre uh, takes place in 1919 uh, during the sort of economic, political dislocation that follows in the wake of the First World War, uh, when returning uh, Indian soldiers and moderate Indian politicians, uh, including Gandhi, uh, have been uh, openly supportive of the British war effort for the, you know, preceding four years, with the expectations that they would be rewarded for their loyalty and their, you know, Quite substantial contributions to the war effort. I think something like 1.3 million Indians are actually either fighting or other uh, in other ways uh, in, engaged uh, during the First World War, um, and the British are not actually minded to sort of follow up on the on the reforms that have been promised, and instead uh, they kind of uh, panic. And begin to see this, this beginning Indian nationalist mobilisation as uh, a, a second mutiny. You know, thinking back to one of the sort of nightmare scenarios of the of the nineteenth century, and and so the British think that they can calibrate, you know, uh, the carrot and the stick very carefully, and you know, offer reforms to moderate, loyal Indians, and then use the, the um, well, really quite draconian. Um, legal measures. I mean, the kind of laws that are being uh, put in place in 1919 are very similar to the sort of anti-terrorism legislation that we see today after 9-11. And so, you know, on the one hand, the British are saying, yes, you know, Indians can. If you're willing to work with us, then we we will allow you to have a seat at the government at some level, right? But at the same time, any kind of political agitation uh, will be clamped down on very hard. And, uh, and that kind of just spirals out of control. Um, so, and so you have unprecedented mass mobilization uh, across India. Um, and the British, they basically, in, in Punjab, uh, which is you know, in, in the northwestern corner um, of, of, of India, butting up against uh, Afghanistan and northwest frontier, they basically pull the emergency brake and, and, and uh, freak out. And, and so we have these sort of clashes where, on the one hand, local, uh, you know, local Indian uh, nationalist leaders and the local population believe that they're engaged in a some kind of parliamentary negotiation with the British authorities uh, and, um, and that they are actually in a position to bargain. And the British, they th- think they're about to be overrun by thousands of bloodthirsty rebels. Uh, and that that sort of deeply tragic uh misreading on both parts uh leads um well leads to the Emirates of massacre which takes place on the, 19, uh, on the 13th of April 1919 when uh, the british general dyer he orders um his troops to open fire on on a on a gathering which is in a, in a sort of a park which is surrounded by walls and houses so people can't escape and there's something like fifteen twenty thousand. 20,000 people gathered, a lot of families, uh, some women, lots of children playing. There is a political meeting. Um, And the way I I sort of explain it is that Indians, the Indians who were gathered there were either there just because it was a park and it it was also a a religious festival uh, or to hear some political speeches which they didn't really know much about. but General Dyer, you know, he comes. He's got two armored cars, and he's got uh, British troops stationed all around the city gates. And he literally thinks he's entering a war zone, and that he'll have to be, he'll be ambushed and has to fight his way out. So he he sees this as a you know yeah he he carries this out as, as a military operation, and uh, they kill something like five six hundred people, maybe three times as many are wounded, and uh, the violence. Sort of escalates. The following day, there is bombing of villages uh, elsewhere, and sort of widespread. Just you know, the the British they they really overreact, and and that's a moment when um, Gandhi and a lot of other uh, prominent Indian nationalists um, they realize that actually uh, the future of, of British rule in India is 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 not possible, and that uh, independence for the first time becomes a reality. And so, so it, it, that has become. It was even at the time, uh, because it caused uh, an outcry internationally, and and you know Churchill famously denounced General Dyer in the House of Commons, which is something you often hear being brought up. Uh, but crucially, what Churchill said was that this is not what the British Empire is like, and this was one rogue officer who uh, who led the side down and acted in a very unBritish way, um, and and no, notably Dyer. He was, he was forced to resign uh, and, on half pension, but that was the full extent of his punishment. And uh, the House of Lords supported General Dyer. And as, as we also know, there was a widespread support for him uh, with a collection of, of uh, something like 26,000 pounds, which is, was quite an, uh, a huge amount at the time. Um, but even then, at the t- in 1919, 1920, there was this narrative that, you know... Um, This was not the way the British Empire was run and then General Dyer was I don't think it's unfair to say he was you know thrown under the bus and we also know from Churchill's own historical record that he he was not actually opposed to using violence in the Empire it's just that what happened at Amritsa made it impossible to defend the Empire and so there are moments like the Amritsar massacre, uh, the suppression of Mau Mau in Kenya uh, in the nineteen fifties, or we could go back to the eighteen uh, fifty seven uprising. There are these moments that are simply indefensible, uh, but then they are they are sort of identified as as sort of oh these are, these are the bad moments, but but they're also the exception, and they're in a sense they they are the exception that proves the the reality of a benign British Empire, and uh, of course it's it's a bit. Um, uh, contradictory for me to say that y- you can't put too much emphasis on these moments since I've written about them extensively myself, uh, but I think it's important, uh, really important to realize that these were not isolated moments, but that they were the part of, of, of a very obvious pattern uh, because the British Empire was predicated on the use of extreme force.
1: It's interesting that you can kind of see um the the kind of the the damage control and the the PR happening earlier earlier on in the british empire in terms of trying to say you know this is you know we're, we're, you know um talking about things like bringing civilization to these areas and i'm sure that some people didn't really believe it but i i feel like the modern kind of view there are people who are particularly happy to Rabbit on about the benefits of empire and how you know yeah well you know we did the best and all this um but the 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 problem is that there are these kind of culture wars that are generated about you know are you pro empire or anti empire and I think that's a problem in itself because it's being dragged into this. Um, you know, very dichotomic kind of view of history in the past. Um, what what do you think is what are the what are the some of the main arguments nowadays that you come across uh, that are kind of like about def- defending the British Empire? What are the kind of examples that you would normally come across when people speak to you?
0: I think it's, it's, it's a very, uh, it's sort of almost a knee-jerk reaction uh, or, or, or way of engaging with the past, which is a balance sheet approach. Uh, and, and people will say, oh, yeah, sure, there were, there were some bad things, but why don't you ever talk about the good things? And there's this, for me, it's a deeply bizarre notion uh, that, that you can reduce the past uh, to this kind of um, really banal notion of good and bad and where you have the massacres and famines on the, on the bad side, but then you have railways and uh, rule of law and the, all the other things that didn't actually exist in the empire on the plus side. And you can it, it leads to a, a, a deeply disturbing moral calculation, according to which, you know, a thousand miles of railway equals X number of, of dead natives, uh, in inverted commas. Uh, and it's, of course, a, a deeply... Uh, a historical way of of looking at the past. I mean, there's no there's no historians, no matter the topic, who actually look at the past in order to to pass out good and bad things. I don't think you know Richard Evans. He studied the Nazis for his entire life in order to determine what was good and what was bad. And we don't use the same approach either. Uh, I'm sometimes criticized for you know talking about the Nazis too easily. But if somebody was to say, yeah, you know, he's his, uh, you know, the Holocaust and his Auschwitz, and he said, yeah, but what about the good things? It's just very obvious that that, that, that is a an attempt at, at somehow, if not justifying, then at, at least relativizing uh, atrocities and, and these kind of things. And that's why we shouldn't use that uh, approach to the British Empire. But it was never a, 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 a way of... of it was never a way of, of understanding the past, uh, and, and it was always uh, a, a part of, of imperial propaganda that was used in the 19th century itself. And, you know, the abolition of slavery is one thing, is one clear example of that. That, you know, yes, we did we, we, we did <laughs> we did engage in slavery for several hundred years, but then we abolished it and then we spent all of the 19th century uh, you know, fighting slavery, and, and so to so in the, in the in the final in the final equation, uh, we can be proud of the British Empire, and and that's just pure propaganda. It's, it's got nothing to do with historical facts. It's got nothing to do with any attempt at understanding what happened. Just to take the example of of of, of you know Brit- Britain's effort to to stop uh, slavery and slave trade, um, I mean people think that the British they freed slaves and sent them home with you know I don't know a meal. T- a ticket or, or, or whatever, uh, but that's not actually what happened. The people who who were freed, uh, they, they often became indentured laborers, and and, and, the, and the British uh, efforts to, to you know stop uh, s- slavery uh, was used in as as an excuse to expand the sphere of British colonial control uh, in various parts of Africa. Which is not to say that it was bad, but it's just. Blatantly obvious that you can't simply describe pretty much anything in a historical context as either good or bad, and that's that's one of the things that really frustrates me because people simply cannot get away from this idea that um, you have to you have to either. Yeah. If if you don't say that the British Empire was good, it must be because you you hate yourself or you hate the British Empire. And so there's a very sort of strange conflation between historical analysis and, and then uh personal well, I guess, identity or self understanding. Mm-hmm. Which is of course one Yeah.
1: Totally. It's That's, it's the it's, whole yeah it's the whole pride thing isn't it like you have to be proud of who you are and the country you come from and and
0: and that is i think is actually it took me a long time to realize this but that is actually key to understanding the kind of um i mean even even talks about statues and stuff like that i mean who on earth cares about these old statues but it's quite (laughs) clear that uh that and, and i I don't think the people who are actually insisting that we should keep up every single statue uh against the the horrible woke crowd or mob from um i mean they're not actually interested in the history of these individuals they're not interested even in the statues themselves, but these statues are statues are perceived as part of a narrative about british exceptionalism that on a, at a personal level people are, deeply invested in. So if you have to take down a statue, it means that maybe the stories you've been telling yourself or that you were told uh, about how proud you should feel uh, have to be questioned. And people don't like to you know, question their own beliefs. And so it, it, to, for, you know, for activists to you know, you know, demand that a statue should be taken down is by many sort of, of a conservative leaning perceived as a personal attack because it attacks uh, a kind of a symbolism, this whole sort of repertoire of symbolism uh, that they're deeply invested in. (laughs) and that's that's that is one of the you know that's where you bang your head against the wall because you keep seeing and and even sort of you know critical work uh, uh, critical historical research such as uh, the kind I I do but I mean we've had quite a few um, sort of um, Publications recently that made a bit of a splash, uh, and I think that's fantastic. You ma- you mentioned uh, Priyko Pal's book, but we've had Dan Hicks, uh, the British Museum, uh, and and Satnam Empire Land, more recently, and and people, you know, uh, we had the Secretary of the Culture Secretary not too long ago talking about um, you know and, and warning people against trying to rewrite history, and and it it. it doesn't make sense to me because rewriting history is literally what historians do. Otherwise <laughs> there would be just be one narrative and we could just add to it as the years pass. But rewriting history is what historians do. So what are these people actually talking about? And I, after reading actually um, Priya Satch's book, I, I came to realize that what they are saying is we are re- rewriting not history, but the historical narrative that they are proud. Of, that, that, that allows you to be proud of the empire. And that's what they are objecting to. Uh, and, and the same thing with statues, same thing with returning um, loot in, in, in museums. I mean, people don't actually, they're not actually invested in these things for their own sake. But the, the idea that the British Museum should return something, suggests that maybe the idea of the greatness of Britain and then, you know, the British Museum is, is one of the great British institutions, needs to be rethought. Or maybe you need to, you know, yeah, think a bit more carefully about the narrative you tell yourself. And people are really reacting very strongly to that. And, of course, we, we, we're saying people, which is, again, you know, a shorthand for um, a wide range of, of, of different voices. <laughs>
1: So we're just going to take a break there. And when we come back, we'll talk tactics, I think. So you're listening to Modern Myth. Uh, we're talking about empire and the apologia within. And um, I-, I think I think you're absolutely right in highlighting some of the really good work that has come out recently. I actually have the British Museums uh, on it desk on a pile on my desk here and i'm kind of starting my way through that and i think it's nice to know that there is actually work that's being you know recognized and talked about but i i know that people i know we just came out the other segment saying that people you know the people that are against this um form are coming from all different backgrounds who people who don't want the narrative to change of the British Empire, but it seems the loudest voices um, seem to come from certain demographics. Um, in terms of, I, I find it very very funny that there are a number of professors and academic staff who almost feels like they make their career on you know talking about the balance of empire and the good things about empire. Um, I, 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 how do we how do we how do we move forward, you know? How do we actually do things differently so that we can actually start talking about the Empire in a truthful way? You know, is it, like it's obvious that not just saying, well, actually, this happened, isn't enough. Um, there's something else that needs to be done. Um, what do you think about that?
0: Well i mean i have to admit that uh quite often i'm i'm quite sort of um not exactly depressed but disillusioned about the state of the of the of the public debate because these issues have very much been politicized and um i mean we you know, we're now living in brexit mm-hmm. britain um uh, so i mean we're living the realities of of this this is a particular uh historical moment uh where you know i I never knew that the British empire would be this big thing that's that's pretty much dominating, um, you know, the the, the debate uh, for for quite a while now. Um, And I'm not sure. I mean, the thing is if you write critically about the British empire and I say critically as in history being a critical endeavor in which you question established narratives and, and, and you, you know, don't simplify it and reduce it to a matter of good or bad. I mean, just for the record, I have no time for people who say, um, you you know, the British is just, the British Empire was just one long massacre. And, um, I mean, something like Richard Gott's book, uh, which I think is called Britain's Empire or something like that, came out a few years ago. I find that quite unhelpful because that's just lists uh, a sort of, a list of massacres and, and sort of the litanies of the empire. It doesn't actually explain what happened or the historical processes. Uh, so, and, and, and another example would be Shashi Teru's book, um, which is just cramped full of, of factual, you know, infidelities, uh, but is also a, an oversimplified narrative. Um, so I very much think... Um, we have to distinguish between a genuine debate about the past which his, that's a you know life and blood of, of what historians we do that's that's pretty much what I do that all the time and and even you know the kind of authors that that you know that whose work I like uh you know I don't like all of it and we you know Debate each other and we disagree about historical interpretations uh, all the time. That is that is how history is actually rewritten um, in a productive way, and we absolutely have to have those conversations and debates. But that's not actually what's taking place uh, during this sort of confected culture war, because it's not about. I mean, people of a sort of nostalgic persuasion they don't actually care about history. They, They, I mean. None of them have spent, you know, five minutes in the archives trying to actually, you know, learn about the past. Uh, it, it, they Instead, they simply weaponize the past and, and, and reduce it to these sort of almost sort of, you know, bumper sticker kind of. But I mean, but the railways, <laughs> that's, that's, we, you always hear that. Uh, we, we, which, again, bears no relation to, you know, what actually happened. The British did not conquer India in order to build railways for Indian people. They built railways for strategic reasons so they could move troops around and so that produce uh, could move be moved around quickly uh, and, and, and benefit uh, British profits. And uh, after, you know, obviously, you know, Indians could also use the trains, and they did, but the idea that railways is is just a good thing is 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 really you know in many ways bizarre to me. But we have to re- realize that th- that's why this is not a um, a genuine discussion. And and we and I think uh, it's it's a mistake to have debates with people to have debates about the past with people who don't care about the past. And you just have to realize that there's no it doesn't doesn't matter how many facts you can muster how many much nuance or sophisticated you know narratives or criticism or whatever you can come up with uh, you're not going to change people's minds if they are deeply invested in one particular narrative i mean, t- t- take cecil Rhodes Cecil Rhodes was a White supremacists. He wrote throughout his life about Anglo-Indian world domin uh, Anglo-Saxon world domination, and yet we have people who insist that he was not a racist. And I mean, how how are you supposed to debate that? You you just can't. Uh, it's a bit, you know, somebody who's a flat earther. You can't, you know, s- s- talk to them about <laughs> anything or, or, or climate denial. It, it it comes in the same uh same kind of category and and so i'm torn between you know you know what's the what's the appropriate Mm -hmm. strategy in that respect
1: and this is the problem is that you could um say you know ignore them don't debate them don't give them oxygen but that doesn't work i mean we we've seen online that um you know the rise of the alt right the far right online has not been stopped by people ignoring them you know it it has actually grown in in spite of um what some people think oh just leave them alone they'll just do their own thing and then they've actually gone and you know <laughs> done things that like everybody's shocked by i think there 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 must be something that we i think there's i think you're right to say that the the role of the historian is to interpret and analyze history and i think the that what you see day-to-day with people making apologia for um the empire in the very basic and superficial ways that you've talked about they're not historians You know, a lot of them are commentators, they're pundits, they're, you know, ex-politicians, they're newspaper columnists, Um, but they're not historians. And I think perhaps... Um, by a historian engaging with them, it, it, it you're right. It gives the it it, it kind of gives them the credibility uh, that really they shouldn't have. But then you know it's up for then it's up for other people who are also not technically historians, who, you know, to fight them. <laughs> I guess it, it's a it's a very difficult um, it's a very difficult ne- like needle to thread because I, I like I, I find this difficult as well because. I want people to have a better idea of how to handle history in the past. I'm really interested in how do people engage with the past and what are the ways we can kind of give them the tools to enjoy it and go through it and be invested in it. Um, Because I think one of the biggest failures um, of the modern time is that you know history and the past is seen as some sort of luxury that you kind of like oh I'll do this for culture you know and th- there doesn't seem to be an investment in it you know um, I I think for me as somebody who's half northern Irish um, I was never really invested in Irish history until I actually went to Dublin and I visited the Kilmanaham Gaul I started reading up about Irish myths and legends I started reading like you know about the actual history behind the famine Um, and that actually connected me more. That really gave me a better insight and I think maybe, uh, I don't know what you think about this, but if we can get people invested in the past and caring about it, maybe that's the way forward. I don't know. What do you think?
0: Well, I think what we're seeing is that people are deeply invested in the past. The question is, how do they perceive it? Uh, And the thing is, you, you can't, Discuss his history with people who don't actually care about history, but still instrumentalizes history. Uh, so I think you're absolutely right. We ha- we have to. I, I, I teach history. It's 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 what I do and I write about it. Uh, we we have to um, keep 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 you know keep keep doing what we've been doing all along. But the thing is, I mean, you you can't you can't control how you're read right and, and so so one of the things i've found you know through own bitter experience is that you can write as carefully as nuanced as well researched uh, as you as you will people will still misread it if they want to and so i think there is a part of this debate which it makes no point in engaging with well, but rather we need to call it out and that's what I do on Twitter a lot, but at the same time, we then also have to keep producing uh interesting and, and and critical history and again, just for the record, this is not about everybody agreeing on one particular line. of course, that's what uh these sort of free speech warriors and you know nostalgically inflicted people would like to insist that oh yeah we we hate. The British Empire. We say it's bad, and you know we won't rest until all the statues have been destroyed. And everybody tells the same same line,
1: I mean, <laughs> which <okay>. is actually <laughs> if you're offering. But, well, I mean, it's
0: it's it's um, that's not act. I mean, I uh-huh. tell my students that they don't have to agree with me. Yeah, and actually, I prefer if mm-hmm. they don't because otherwise, yeah. it's just you know, it is just an echo chamber, and that's again not what history is about. It's not what the past is about. Uh, and and so we we, we have to keep uh pushing and i th- I think we are uh sort of the books we've been mentioning, uh the kind of heritage work that is taking place, and but then which is also really coming under attack uh, in, in, in quite disturbing ways uh by the current government as well um, I, I in some ways I'm disillusioned, and in some ways uh, I, I also think there's a lot of good things happening. And the, the sort of um, reaction we're seeing is really a rearguard action of uh, a lost cause. And, and that conservatives and right-wingers and free-speechers are um, kicking out the way they are because their time is, has, has passed. I mean, I, I'm not sure that empire nostalgia quite, is quite necessarily very useful as a term. Um, and and I've, I've thought of calling something like, you know, phantom pains of, of empire. This is, you know, some people don't realize that the empire has gone and they still feel this sort of pride and, and, uh, and sort of personal investment in particular narratives about the empire at a time when they're, they're completely obsolete and, and sort of obviously uh, anachronistic. Uh, and, and so I, th- I think, uh, you know, it, the the government wouldn't have to, uh, you know, attack any attempt uh, at discussing slavery in the context of heritage institutions with such virulence unless they were actually really afraid that the narrative might be changing. Um, so in some ways, the culture war and the debates are disheartening, but at the same time, I also think they, they – they can be interpreted as being a, a, a positive reflection of of uh, of change
1: excellent well thank you very very much for coming and talking to me about this this is something that i think is really really important and if people want to kind of follow what you have to say on twitter and elsewhere where would they look online
0: uh so i think i'm k-i-m-a-t-i-w-a-g-n-e-r uh, on twitter and um
1: Yeah. Yeah, and just, just on Twitter. No worries, I'll have a link for it. Boop, boop my name. <laughs> of course. Well thank you again uh for coming and talking to us and uh, I hope you've enjoyed this. It was my pleasure. Now clear you held dear. They told you what you to And to see
0: that the truth This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.